0: If you have a Bible with you, you can take it out and open to the letter of, of the Ephesians in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have the words projected for you this morning, and so uh, so that'll be available to you. Uh, let it be known. I, I say it often. We've got some visitors here today. We love to give away free Bibles. So uh, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, or, or maybe you have a Bible, but it's a, a different version, um, I, I read and preach from uh, the English Standard Version, and so that's just what, what we've chosen to use here and so we've got some of those available oh, as you exit today there's a table right there pick, pick one up in fact we're running out of them so we've got to order some more but but we, we would love to be known as that church that'll, that'll give away a free bible so um, there's that uh, we preach through books of the Bible consecutively here. Uh, what I mean by that is, is we'll take a section, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's, there's 66 different books, letters, there's different genres, but we will take one and we will commit a, a season of, or a series of preaching through that. And the way I liken this for, for you that are kind of health nuts is uh, everybody talks about the balanced diet, Right, like it's all about balance. We've since we were kids, we always saw that plate with the right portions of everything. It changes. It seems like every so often, but but the idea of a balanced diet is actually why we preach the Bible here. We we actually think that that this is the food that God would have for His people, and so we just preach through it uh, to, to give you a balanced understanding of of what God has to say in the Bible. And so uh, right now we are right in the middle of a, a series, but you're, if you're a visitor, you're coming in just in time. We are in, in the middle of a New Testament letter, and uh, God tells us some incredible things in this letter uh, to the Ephesians. So today we are gonna look at um, chapter three. Uh, I'm gonna begin in verse one and go down through verse 13. So if you're following along on your lap or on your phone or on the screen, let's, uh, let's give our attention to the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask Him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we need to hear a word from you. We need to know what it is that you would have for us as we are surrounded and bombarded by a world that screams all kinds of messages at us. And so, Lord, I pray that now by your spirit that you would open eyes, soften hearts, open ears, that we might receive your word as food from our Father in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us over the past 6 months of us doing public worship, you have caught bits and pieces of my college saga. My my long reign of college days. The I took the long route. It's 7-8 years, something along those lines. We stopped counting after 5, I don't know. It's just one of those. And um Part of, part of my story and part of my story about God's work in my life is, is actually how he brought me from, from the bottom of, of my grades and, and kind of did something through me, not to my praise but to his praise. But one, one of those stories that I want to share in opening this morning was an opportunity that I had to receive a scholarship at the school that I, that I finally uh, ended up graduating from, which is Grand Canyon University. Uh, at Grand Canyon University, there is a famous rock star who is associated with the city of Phoenix and with this, with this university, uh, Alice Cooper. Is it familiar? Yes. Ali, that Alice Cooper. Everybody got the picture? Snakes biting, all that weird stuff? Yeah. So Alice Cooper is a committed Christian. He, he loves Jesus. He does. And he has this scholarship that's made available to students. Um, and I was given the opportunity to apply for this scholarship. Now, again, some backstory on my saga. At this point, uh, I was coming up into my senior year of college. Uh, parents had kind of given up at chipping too much money away at me. I was kind of at the end of that. And uh, I was desperate to kind of make the ends meet at the end of my college career. And by, by God's grace, I got invited. It was an, uh, an invite to apply for this. So I don't really know how, but, but I got this interview to apply for this, this scholarship. And this, um, this interview, it, 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 it really marked me. Uh, it was kind of one of those, those tangible moments that you just really you just sense God's presence with you. Now, I know... There's some Presbyterians here and that kind of gets weird for you, but listen, he was there, okay? And so God's presence was there like tangibly. I, I left that room and, and I gave this interview and, and, you know, and, and I, I just left there just knowing that God was with me. And uh, at that point, I had barely brought my GPA up. I mean, it was barely respectable. We, we might be at like 2.1 at this point. I don't know, like it was, it was barely there. And so by all means, by all accounts, I was unworthy of this scholarship, <laughs> I mean, the least deserving. I, I mean, the fact that I wasted this man's time to to, to even apply for this scholarship, I, I thought it was a waste of time. Well, I ended up getting the scholarship, and it wasn't anything profound. It was, you know, several thousand dollars, nothing, nothing too crazy. It helped me that that final semester. But, but I vividly remember leaving um, that room, you know, sensing God's presence, and then receiving news that I I got the scholarship. Just, just. Just un, just broken and undone that, that God gave me something that I had not earned, and it, it was just a tangible thing, a little scholarship, but but it was just completely undeserved. I was completely unqualified i don 't know who else applied for this scholarship, but I got it and um, and so you know when you, when you leave a situation like that, just knowing that you are unqualified for something, that you have done nothing to deserve or earn something and then you're, you're, you're pour, it's poured out on you, it changes you. It, it really does. It can change you. My job today, as we look at this passage, is to convince you how little you actually deserve. It's kind of that hard part of the job, right? <laughs> but also how much you, you really get when you come to that point. Uh, The context for today's passage and and really for all of Ephesians and a lot of Paul's writing is this this Jew-Gentile kind of distinction that was going on in the early church, right? We've we've talked about this in, in previous weeks, but basically there was this division because the Jewish people, that is ethnic Israel, had been chosen by God. They'd been given all of these promises and now Jesus has come and those floodgates have opened wide that it's, it's not just for ethnic Israel anymore, it's, it's for the nations. And so we see that the, the context is, is that the, the least deserving people, the Gentiles, are also included in all the promises. And so here's, here's what I wanna communicate to you today is that the gospel mystery is that the people who know they deserve the least get the most. Hey, Did you hear that? So the people who know that they deserve the least actually end up getting the most. Here's, here's what I want us to look at today in, in three parts. I want us to look first at the mystery of the gospel, and then I want us to look at the message of grace, and then I want us, lastly, to look at the mission of God. So let's look first at the mystery of the gospel in verses uh, 1 through 6. One of my favorite movies um, Probably going to give it top five status. I was thinking about that this morning, like where does this rank? I'm thinking top five status is Ocean's Eleven. Now, I'm not talking 1960s Rat Pack Ocean's Eleven. Like I know some of you are thinking like Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin. Not that, not that Ocean's Eleven. The updated 2001, you know, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. I know, I know, I just upset so many of you. So in the 2001 version of, of Ocean's Eleven, if you're not familiar with it, um, it, it's it's I think it's probably rated R. So I don't make it a habit to 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 kind of quote rated R movies, but nonetheless, here I go. Um, in the middle, so so the scene for the movie is that they're gonna they're gonna do a heist. They're gonna rob these um, Las Vegas um, hotels and casinos. So there's this just this elaborate scheme. There's just all kinds of players involved, and the 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 plan unfolds, and they and they, they do the heist, and they show how it works. And, and they, they go through it. But my favorite part of the movie, and here's where I want you to connect with me, is actually when they kind of reverse it. So they've, they've accomplished the heist and they say, well, how did that happen? And they, they, they go back into the movie and they give you the behind the scenes, right? So they kind of show you all of the intricate details that went out to, to bring this plan to fruition. And it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's the best part of the movie, in my opinion, just to see everything that had to go right in order for this thing to to, to be accomplished, uh, something similar actually happens in, in the Bible. Um, you see, the Bible is a, is a book that's that's it's a big story. It's, it's it's a big story of of God redeeming His people. Like from cover to cover, it's it's the love story of God pursuing His people. And the Old Testament, which if you have a book in front of you, a Bible, is like you know sixty six percent of that book, right? So I'll, I'll kind of it off. It's about right here. So it's about, you know, most of the book is the Old Testament. And the Jewish people, including the author of this book, what was, was a Jew. They knew much about the book. They knew much about the promises. Um, and until Jesus comes, they were pretty much clueless. They really didn't understand how the story was going to work out, how it was going to unfold. Well, the place where we're at in, in the history that this letter that we're reading today was written is actually where God begins to unfold and give some new clues into what the old was talking about. And so things like the, uh, the, the Israelites' deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, their wandering through the wilderness, you know, the Passover lamb who had to be slain in order to cover God's people, you know the, the, the temple system and all of the sacrifices All of that began to make sense when Jesus came. However, when he came, nobody understood who he was or what he had come to do. So so the promise of the Redeemer, the one who the Old Testament pointed to, he comes in the flesh in Jesus and his people don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. It doesn't quite click. And this text tells us why. Why is that? And the answer is because the promises were for more than just the Jews. They were for the Gentiles. The Gentiles was every other nation that was not Jewish. So it was for the nations. It was for every tongue and tribe and people group. It was for Iranians. It was for Afghanistan. It was for Americans and Canadians and Mexicans. It was for all people groups. The good news would come to them. And so we see that Paul tells us that this mystery that the people who thought that they were the least deserving get the most was actually revealed to him. You can read more about this if you're interested in it in Acts chapter 9. There's a few books to the left of Ephesians. Acts chapter 9 gives us Paul's, his conversion story. Uh, Just to give you a quick nutshell of that, Paul was formerly Saul, he was a Jewish man, he was raised in a religious background, he was in the best educated, you know, rabbi school, he was raised a Jew of the Jews, a law keeper of all law keepers, and he's on his way on the Damascus road to persecute and kill Christians. He actually hated the very people who were following the promised redeemer. And so in the account in Acts chapter 9, God reveals to Paul the mystery that the promise is for more than Jews, that it's, it's for the nations. I want to read Acts chapter 9 briefly, verse 15. This is actually Jesus um, speaking to Ananias, who was part of the story. The Lord said to him, Go, for he, that's talking about Paul, the author of Ephesians, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so God, in his wisdom, chose Saul, formerly Saul, now Paul, to tell people the good news that all people are made available to this promise. The mystery is defined for us in verse six. This is, this is the cornerstone of the passage. So like if you're a, a Bible highlighter, This is is one to highlight. Paul tells us the mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's there's actually a a hidden secret in that text. When the Bible wants to make something really important, it repeats itself. When 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 it wants to thunder something, It's repetitive. There's there's actually a hidden repetition in there. There's a word that that doesn't come out. It may come out in your English version. It didn't in mine. It's the word together. The, The text actually reads The Gentiles are fellow heirs together, members of the same body together, and partakers of the promise together. It's this union between the Jews of old and the Gentiles of new coming together into the church. It's one body. It's one new community. See, the gospel, the mystery of the gospel in verse 6 surprises the least expecting. The gospel is most powerful to us when it's least expected. I wonder how many of you, have you heard the, the term familiarity breeds contempt? Familiarity breeds contempt is this idea that the more familiar you become with something, the less amazed at it you are. I wonder how many of us are in that place. You've been around the Bible, you've been around church, you grew up in the church, you were faithful. You know, the, the teachings of, of Jesus are, are something that are that are that are around you all the time. But you've, you've become contempt with it. You've grown bored. It's not that amazing anymore. It's not all that shocking. Have you, have you grown bored? Uh, because when that happens, what ensues upon your life is, is this sense of entitlement. As though you've, you've done something to earn God's favor. It's, it's what happens to us. It's, it's, it's why we must constantly be reminded how bad we actually are. We begin to ensue this, this stature of entitlement. Well, if that's you today, well, let's look at what Paul has to say about the message of grace in verses 7 to 10. Uh, At the the time of this writing, Paul, the apostle, is about 60, mid-60s, give or take a year. We don't have great records of all that kind of stuff. So he's about mid-60s at this time. And he became a Christian. That Acts 9 kind of incident that I I read a portion of was when he was about in his mid-20s. So he becomes a Christian in his mid-20s. He's now in his mid-60s. It's about 40, 40 years of, of life as a Christian, and, and even more than a Christian, he was a, he was a gospel minister. He was planting churches. He was preaching the Bible for 40 years. Uh, his, his ministry included three large missionary journeys that spanned across Asia Minor, crossing into Europe, and he went to major port cities. He went to minor cities. He went to the, to the, to the major culture centers. He went to the unknown backwoods. He covered it all. And, and he, he was met with, with physical rejection, persecution, stoning, lashings. He was met with physical uh, maladies. He had something going on, we think, the thorn in the flesh from 1 Corinthians that he talks about. You know, He did not live a life of prestige and fame. He was not paid well for this gig. At the time that he's writing Ephesians, he's in prison, captive to pagan rulers, Rome, He's imprisoned. It wasn't really the the whole Jesus has a plan for your life that that Paul had seen maybe in his 20s. Um, Now, now there was an illusion in the Acts 9 that that God would require him to suffer for this calling, but, but nonetheless, knowing all of that, Paul still felt like he was fulfilling his calling, that he was doing what God would have him do, And the reason why is is not because Paul was trusting in himself or his own strength or his own merit or his own ability. He was actually constantly trusting in the message that he had been given. And so he uses the language of stewardship, being entrusted with something. He, He believed that God had given him the message of grace to take it to the world. And that he did. And so if you look at verse 8, this is kind of the the summary of what Paul thought he was supposed to do. He says in the middle of verse 8, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So it was Paul's conviction that he was called to take the good news about Jesus to the world, to the nations, to every tongue and tribe, And, and he did to the best of his ability But the most profound thing that we should see from this passage is is not just the what of Paul's message, We'll, we'll get to some of that, but actually the how. How is it that God would communicate this message to the world? Well, verse 10 tells you, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Do you know that God loves to take foolish things to show his wisdom? It's, it's, it's how God operates. Uh, you know, he, he took Paul, this, this formerly z- religious zealot who killed Christians and he made him the premier Christian to plant churches, and That's that's God's wisdom, right? Only God can do that. Uh, he, he takes people that, you know, who did, he, who did the, the revolution of the early church start with? I mean, you think about the, the, the people that, that Jesus could have selected to surround himself with so that they would spend three years with him to, to learn what he, was, what he had come to do and then to take it to the world. Did he choose the elite and the strong and the fit and the religious? Well, no. You all know who he chose. He, he chose fishermen. They were shrewd, but they weren't elite. He, he chose tax collectors who, who took advantage and, and scandalized their own people. He, he, he chose political radicals. He, he chose ordinary men in order to do wise and profound things through through the church. Paul, in another portion of his writings in First Corinthians chapter 1, would speak to us like this. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth." There never has been nor ever will be another system that is founded on grace the way that God has founded Christianity on grace. You see, nobody else has or ever will come up with this system because in the eyes of the world, it's foolish. Let me just remind you and and maybe perhaps perk your ears to a fresh way of thinking about the way God relates to us through grace. You see, God made us in his own image and he showed us the way to live. He he gave us the garden and he said, live with me. And from our first parents forward, we have been rebelling against God's ways. So not only our first parents, but, but you and me from our very birth have been rebelling against God. And so God in his foolishness towards the world and his wisdom in his own ways said, I will come and I will do which you could never do for yourself. So God comes and he takes on flesh. The son of God comes to the world that he made. He becomes a man and he lives an ordinary life like you and like me. He's born, he he goes through infancy, he's raised as a child, yet there is one distinction between him and every other human being who would ever exist. He's perfect. He doesn't falter. He doesn't stumble. He's perfect in all of his ways. And the wisdom of God would say, "This is the one who should be lifted up and praised." But Jesus was lowered, and he was scoured on a cross. He was pinned by his own very own people, the people He came to rescue, He dies for. And so Jesus, in the way of, of, of just complete radical unorthodoxy, says, "The way to live is to die." The way to exaltation is through humiliation. It's the message of foolishness to the world. And so he gives us what we couldn't get on our own. His righteousness. God's standard is met. And you may be saying, okay, if Jesus has done all of that, if he's, if he's done everything that I couldn't do for myself, so, so now what? We'll look at the Apostle Paul. When he knew that his merit and his strength and his worth and his value was not what presented him right in God's eyes, but namely the work of Jesus, what did Paul do with his life? He gave it away. He worked. He was zealous to tell people the message of grace. That should be our response. Let's lastly look at the mission of God. One of of my core convictions, it's kind of a, a silly I think it's kind of silly. It sounds silly, but I'd like to think it's not going to be after I explain it. One of my core convictions theologically is that Christians should be the best sleepers. We should sleep the deepest and most sound. Hear me out. The reason that Christians should sleep the deepest and rest the best is because of verse 11 and and really the entirety of the Bible, and that's that the eternal purpose of God is coming to fruition. In other words, Regardless of the circumstances that surround us, God's purpose is being accomplished. That's the most freeing thing. Like on one level, it's really simple. Like we say, yeah, God, it's all going to work itself out, right? We kind of talk like that or God will work good for this. We kind of use all this Christianese. But I mean, look look at the way Paul believes it. He says all of this. The foolishness of the church proclaiming the message was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. In other words, before God made anything, this was his plan, all of it. Nothing's gone wrong, nothing. I think sometimes we think God's this chess player, like he's up there kind of anticipating moves, like in order to just kind of bring about the best from all of the mess that we make. No, God is on his throne and he always has been. He's moving everything forward and it's all realized in Jesus that everything's always been pointing to him, all of it. And so what's the the reaction or or why is Paul telling us this? Well, verse 12, so that we can have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The the Bible's always written in a context. It's written to, to confuse Christians here. It's written to people that that have, you know, about 30 years ago have have heard about Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. And they're, they're sorting all of this out. And Paul's writing from prison and he tells them to have boldness and access with confidence through his imprisonment. And then it's for this reason, verse 13, so that you don't lose heart. See, the mission of God carries the people of God. Have you lost heart? I mean, honestly, with everything that we are bombarded with, you know, in an election year, you know, in our parenting, even, even if your children are out of the home, and, and maybe they're not walking in the ways that you thought that they would be walking or making decisions that you thought you had prepared them to make. You know, we, we look around us and, and we, we're, we're frazzled by it, right? We're, we're like walking on eggshells. Well, Paul tells us, don't lose heart. Maybe, maybe there's, there's sickness or there's suffering, there's brokenness that's just inexplainable. Like we, we, we cannot see through why. We don't see the why. But just because we don't see the reason for the suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. And that's the, that's the constant thread of the Bible, is that God's on his throne and that his people are not to lose heart in the midst of it, this week um, I met with a, a friend. He's kind of a new friend. Um, he's he's also a church planter. He's planning a, a church on the west side here, and I don't know him all that well. And so we were kind of catching up. I met him about six months ago, and um, so we met up, and and you know it was just kind of a casual thing. We were talking about some ministry stuff, and. Uh, we kind of got through the pleasantries, but barely, like the, how are you? I mean, we, we had barely got through just the, the common catch-ups. And he said this to me, he said, my wife has brain cancer and she's going to die soon. And he told me that. And, uh, you know, the air out of the room is just gone at that point. You know, it's, it's gone. I, you know, I, I don't have words for that. I don't know what that would feel like. And um, he, he kind of put this, this news out there. And and we're both coming at it from different angles, right? This man's been married to his wife for 36 years, he's an older gentleman, um, and he's he's grappling with this reality that he's going to lose his his wife very soon. And here I am, on the other side of that news, changed, albeit in many different ways, but changed by the same news, right? Like, we, we kind of talked through some of it, and we, we it was a very brief kind of meeting, but we, were both, we both left the place changed. Like he's clearly still dealing with the weight of that reality. And I left that place changed. Like wanting to, to hug my wife and to love my children better. And, and so the, 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 the terrible news that was put on, put on the plate right there, it changed both of us even though we are coming at it from completely different directions. It's today's passage is the very same thing. There's actually kind of two people that are in the crosshairs of this passage. One is the author of it, Paul. The other is the recipients of it. Now Paul, here he is, the religious man, right? He's the, the upright, the morally upstanding, kind of good citizen. He's coming at this good news about God's grace from a different place than the recipients. The recipients, Gentiles, unfamiliar, confused, and still grappling with what it means to be in Christ. But regardless of where they're coming from, whether the religious side or the irreligious side, they're both changed by the news. I think today the good news is is out there for us. We've we've heard about what Christ has come to do to rescue his people, and I I think that we all come at that news from different places. I I think some of you are coming at this news from that religious vantage point. Like this, again, is familiar territory to you. You've heard this. This is not new revelation to you. And I think when we get into that, again, what what ensues is this entitlement or this judgmentalism or this self-righteousness that creeps into us as though something we have done has put us where we are. And I think this passage is calling us to get rid of that. The Bible calls that repentance. Turning away from that and turning towards Christ. So I think there are people, there are religious people here who need to stop being so good. Like, did you hear that? Stop being so good because you think your merit is what's putting you in good standing and it's not. Now I think there are others of us that are irreligious that we abuse the grace that God has shown us. And so the gospel, the good news peace doesn't inform our narrative in very many ways. It's kind of a Sunday morning narrative. It doesn't inform the way we conduct our work. It doesn't inform the way we parent. It doesn't inform the way we relate to our spouse. It doesn't inform the way that we relate to our parents. And I think that irreligion needs to be repented of. The gospel demands everything from us. Jesus Christ gave everything for us that we might give everything for him. And so I believe there's people here today that need to turn from your badness, that you need to consider the claims of Jesus and what that means. Because here is, here's my outtake on, on what it means to be a Christian. It means to not only believe the good news piece, but to center your entire life around it. You will frequently hear people use God as the checklist or the priority list. It's God first, family second, work third, or something along those lines. And while in principle that may sound good, it's actually fallacious. It's actually false thinking because God was always intended to be the centerpiece. He was intended to be the hub of our life through which everything else stems. And so this passage calls us to do that as we consider the mystery of the gospel that those who know they deserve the least actually get the most. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's very difficult for us to sometimes see how we're either trying to earn your favor as though we should be walking in fear before you Um, or we have abused your favor and we don't take any uh, implications of the gospel to our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that from whatever angle we are coming from towards the good news today, that you would show all of us how unworthy we are of the good news, how we are the least deserving, Jews and Gentiles alike, religious and irreligious, that none of us have earned your favor. But we get the most because it's just in that moment of belief, believing how bad we really are and how good you truly are, is when you come to us. So, Lord, I pray that in all of the the various ways in which you're working in our lives, that you would show us that to be true and that you would help us to live in light of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm